0: Ted Kaczynski has written three autobiographies. He wrote the first in 1959, when he was 17, as part of his participation in the Murray experiment at Harvard. It's not very long, but he talks openly about his difficult relationship with his parents, his shyness around women, and his discontent with what he terms the social world. He wrote his second autobiography 20 years later, at age 37. He was back home with his parents in Chicago, after nearly a decade living in his cabin in the woods. And it's almost uncomfortably intimate. It feels more intimate than Ted's journals themselves. He describes a teenage sexual encounter with another boy, talks about girls he lusts after and professors he hates. His own lifelong feelings of social inadequacy are everywhere. And this document, Ted says there's a particular reason he's writing it. He's going to start killing people. And if he's captured or killed by the police, He wants people to find the document, read his life story as he sees it. Ted's third autobiography is called Truth Versus Lies. It's 548 pages long, written during his first years as a prisoner. In it, Ted attempts to rebut nearly every claim made about him in the wake of his arrest. But he also spends nearly half the book over 200 pages, writing about his relationship with his brother David. There's a chapter titled, My Brother's Character, another called, My Brother's Ambivalent Feelings Toward Me. There's even a chapter entitled, I Hurt My Brother's Feelings Cruelly. On page after page, Ted comments on the hundreds of letters he and David exchanged over the years, and he chronicles his own increasing rage as their close sibling relationship slowly breaks apart. David says he thought the letters were mostly just them debating ideas, talking about their parents, occasionally questioning the wisdom of a choice one or the other was making in his life. But he sees them differently now.
1: As I look back on it, I think, gosh, you know, I shouldn't have been so worried about trying to change Ted's mind. I should have been listening to his suffering, because he was suffering, more than he ever talked about. Um, I should have been more attuned to the fact that he was really deeply, deeply struggling. But I think about 25 years living in isolation without any close relationship, um, I think almost anybody could end up being damaged by such intense isolation for such a long time.
0: What's ironic about the way David talks about Ted's isolation is that while Ted was holed away in his cabin, David was holed away for many of those same years in a literal hole. Whatever you're imagining when you hear that, trust me, it's not nearly as strange as the truth. We'll get there soon enough. Because for all their debates, for all of Ted's fury, David and Ted viewed society and retreated from it in similar ways. In this episode... The story of how two kindred souls became lost to the world, and then to each other. This is Project Unibomb, an Apple original podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. I'm Eric Benson. Episode 4, Parallel Brothers. You might recall that at the end of episode two, before our detour into the suspicious world of Dungeons and Dragons, Ted had just decided to leave his cabin in Montana and return home to Chicago. It was the late spring of 1978. That's where we are now. Ted moved back to his parents' house in Lombard, Illinois. By then, David was also living at home, working at a foam cutting factory alongside his dad. Ted joined them there. Like Ted's other gigs, his job at the factory wouldn't last long. But there was something that happened in his short time there that shed some interesting light on Ted's troubled relationship with women and on the precarious position David often found himself in when it came to Ted. David was a low-level supervisor in the factory. Ted worked the day shift. They were both overseen by a woman named Ellen Tarmichael. After a few weeks on the job, Ted became infatuated with Ellen. He wanted to ask her out, but he couldn't work up the nerve. One Sunday afternoon, he ran into Ellen, and she invited him over. Their involvement was brief. Three dates, a couple goodnight kisses. Ellen said it was never a romance at all. She ended
1: up telling him that um, she wanted to remain friends, but didn't feel like this was a relationship she wanted to pursue. And Ted got very, very upset um, and took revenge by harassing her. He, He wrote some really ugly limerick that he began posting around the workplace. And, of course, nobody knew it was Ted except me. When I read it, I knew, well, only Ted could have written this. And I confronted him, told him, look, you, you quit this or I'm going to fire you. I was really angry that he was treating this girl this way. He didn't talk to me all night. And then the next day, he came up to the machine I was working on, slapped this piece of paper, it was the limerick, and he says, okay, are you going to fire me? I said, yeah, Ted, go home.
0: Technically, Ellen was the one with the actual authority to fire Ted. She did. She backed David up. But Ted wasn't done. He wrote Ellen a letter, accusing her of being devious and insincere. He told her he'd been contemplating violence against her, but had now decided against it. He signed off by warning, I'm not the only man with a revengeful streak. Ted soon got a job at another factory, but the whole incident had a kind of traumatizing effect on David too. He quit his job, hopped in his car, and drove away from Chicago, south and west, until he reached the vast high desert of West Texas. He stayed there for weeks, camping and hiking, and more than anything else, being alone. When he finally called his parents to let them know where he was, they put him on with Ted.
1: Ted, I think, had been coached by our parents to say, please come back, David. So he did. There was some, not quite an apology on his part, but at least some forgiveness of my having fired him. And... Um, Came back, and one of the first things we did together was have a picnic out in the forest preserve. And uh, Ted and I went for a a walk together, and it it felt like um, a time of reconnection. So I think he understood why I was upset enough to fire him, and um, I hoped he'd felt badly about the way he had behaved. But he didn't. He didn't really. We didn't talk about that.
0: That picnic was one of the last times Ted and David would interact in person. A couple weeks later, Ted left again for Montana. David thought it was just Ted being Ted, unable to feel at home anywhere, so back to his old secluded life with a little money in the bank. What David couldn't know was that during his time in Chicago, Ted had placed three bombs. The two that ended up at the tech building at Northwestern that had led to the investigation of the Dungeons & Dragons group, And the third, in November 1979, which he'd rigged with an altimeter, then put in an airmail package. You remember this one. It detonated on a flight bound for Washington, D.C., with 80 people aboard, but didn't take down the plane. In his journal, Ted wrote, The papers said FBI was investigating the incident. FBI, suck my cock. So I came back to Montana early December. Now work on other plans. Back in Chicago, David definitely didn't have any plans. He'd always been more social than Ted. As a kid, he'd had plenty of friends, liked sports. But his life was kind of aimless now. He got a job driving a bus, putzed around for a while, kept thinking to himself, there must be something more. I was kind of, you know,
1: I didn't have much going for me there. I mean, driving a bus, playing softball in the summer, it was like my life felt like it wasn't going anywhere, and I wanted to reconnect with nature. So I wrote to Ted and said, uh, hey, you know, um, I'm thinking of coming back and living on our land, (laughs) maybe building a cabin for myself. Would that be okay with you? And uh, he wrote to tell me that he preferred to be alone. Of course, I had no idea of the secret he was harboring. And that's when I started to think more about Texas. I love this desert in Texas, and um, I decided uh, that I would try to move down here. I discovered land was pretty cheap, and uh, it ended up putting me in a, in a life that, was, that I thought was parallel to my brothers. I in the desert, he in the northern forest, um, I had had... A real sense, the first time I visited deserts, that uh, real sense that it was a spiritual home for me.
0: David was 33 when he moved back to the desert. He later wrote what could easily be mistaken for a line in Ted's manifesto, that he, quote, saw the world's technology culture as fatally contaminated by nihilism. David wanted to discover a more meaningful way of living. He started writing poetry, Took long backpacking trips. Read the philosopher Martin Heidegger. Had hours, days, weeks to contemplate what it meant to just be in the world.
1: You know, most of what we deal with in the uh, civilized world is comes with instructions. You know, here's how you're supposed to interact. Here's the stimulus. There's your response. Um, in nature, it's more, uh, there's a kind of openness and uh how we come to terms with our own existence in a universe that's much bigger than ourselves.
0: But nature demanded a lot more from David than contemplation. The reality is that living in the desert alone was hard and uncomfortable and primitive. More primitive, even, than Ted's life in Montana. The first couple of
1: years, believe it or not, I tried to live in a tent and found out that the desert was too windy to uh, accommodate that. So I ended up kind of digging a hole in the ground, covering it with some pieces of tin that I had found and, and living underground.
0: You you dug it? It was like a, as big as a house or, or what? I'm just, I'm just trying to imagine kind of what this looked like.
1: I'd say it was a little bit larger than a grave. <laughs> It was maybe 10 feet long, 4 feet wide, 5 feet deep. So I couldn't really stand up inside. And because, you know, there are rattlesnakes in the desert, I I kind of dug it big enough to set up my little pup tent. As you know, in the desert, it can get pretty cold during the winter at night and uh, pretty hot during the day. And living underground had the benefit of you know moderating the temperatures quite a bit.
0: I've seen photographs of this hole, and it really is a hole. It's nearly impossible to imagine anyone living there voluntarily for more than a night or two. There's desert scrub all around, so it blends into the landscape. The sheets of tin serve as a makeshift roof. He placed rocks on top so the wind wouldn't blow them away. It was in that hole, a little bit larger than a grave, that David began to experience the feeling he'd longed for.
1: There were times that just felt so incredibly peaceful, deeply, deeply peaceful. And, you know, living underground helps you think maybe a little bit about mortality or um, all the animals that also live underground here out in the desert, Um, you know, from kangaroo rats to coyotes to uh, all kinds of badgers, all kinds of critters. So I felt I was on a kind of spiritual quest, put it that way. And there were moments uh, that felt like it wasn't completely futile.
0: What did Ted think of, of your move to the desert?
1: My sense was that he approved of it very much,
0: yeah. David and Ted corresponded almost constantly during those years. David would write his letters and mail them from a post office in a tiny border town, which was more than 30 miles away, checking to see if there was a letter from Ted waiting in his P.O. box. The brothers would go on for months, debating art and science, intuition versus rationality. David was always the poet, the seeker, the guy who was just fine living in a hole. Ted saw himself as logical, practical, he said David needed to buy a gun to protect himself from wild animals, give up being a vegetarian so he wouldn't starve. And also, there was the issue of the hole. He says, you know, you really should build a
1: cabin. Come on, it's not that hard. He, he knew that I had a lazy streak in me. So um, he just maybe thought I was living too close to the ground.
0: Ted could be warm, even on rare occasions, kind of sweet to David in his letters. He recounted a dream in one of them of starving children in a war-ravaged country. If there was ever a war in America, he wrote, I would do everything I possibly could to protect you. Then Ted interpreted his dream further. This illustrated the semi-maternal tenderness that I've often felt for you. David and Ted's parents were concerned about David too. Turk, their father, didn't mind his sons living off the land, but he thought there was a right way to do it. You know
1: my parents came to visit and i think my father had expectations he was he was very handy like ted he was very good with his hands and i told him about this underground dwelling that i had made and he even had a name for it a brie i think was what the um, french uh, trappers had made for themselves a, a kind of underground shelter and i my dad came to look at what i'd done and he just I could just see that sense of disappointment and worry in his eyes, like, oh my God, here's my son (laughs) living basically in a ditch. Um, It was fine for me. I think a little concerning for our parents.
0: But what concerned Turk and Wanda even more was the social isolation of both of their sons. Live off the grid, live an unconventional life, Fine, but neither brother had ever had a partner.
1: A um, couple times, my mother had met some younger women at work and tried to fix me up with them, and so forth. Uh, there was some wondering why, why, are neither of our boys, you know, hooked up with with girlfriends or, or partners or, or whatever? Is did we do something wrong? You
0: know, why, why were neither of their boys hooked up with girlfriends or partners at that point in their lives?
1: Um, I wasn't very attractive, unfortunately. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, uh, there, are, uh, there are all sorts of uh, people who, who have girlfriends and partners.
1: Yeah, the, the real answer is that, you know, again, this is the romantic side of me. I fell in love when I was 16 years old.
0: He fell in love with Linda Patrick. They were lab partners in high school. David idolized Linda, but she seemed to want to keep their friendship platonic. They went to different colleges, pursued different lives, but David made sure they stayed in touch all the time he thought, or hoped, we're going to end up together.
1: And uh, looked for a while, like Linda and I might be lifetime mates, and then she married a fellow graduate student, and I just felt, that's it, you know? Uh, I love Linda. How could I love somebody else?
0: But what about Ted at that point? Was that something he ever discussed or, or let on a sense of disappointment about if, if he had one?
1: Well, Ted and I, you know, were, we didn't talk about feelings or personal things with each other that much. Neither of us talked about our need for or feelings about women.
2: You know, we evolved as human beings by communicating with each other.
0: This is FBI behavioral analyst Kathy Puckett again. Remember, she was the one who spent her days on the case trying to get inside the Unabomber's mind.
2: You know, we didn't have fangs and and claws to exist on our own as singletons out in the world. I mean, we're basically helpless without social groups and the technology that we've evolved. We're very different than any other species on the planet. You know, connecting to things is part of the way the human brain is wired.
0: Ted Gaczynski was isolated his entire life. Growing up in Chicago, he sought seclusion in the attic of his family's house. As a student at Harvard and Michigan, as a professor at Berkeley, he didn't make strong friendships, didn't share his thoughts or dreams or confidences. So much of what we know about Ted comes from the journals and letters he wrote for much of his adult life, sitting very alone, mostly in his tiny cabin. Kathy says that that isolation is related to the grand proclamations about humanity Ted made in the manifesto. He's
2: absolutely convinced that he knows that the human race, which he can't connect to emotionally, but he wishes he could, the human race needs to be made aware of how they're destroying the planet and it's destroying human society. So he can care about them in the, in the aggregate, but there's, there's no individuals that he could make any real relationships
0: with. Ted longed for these relationships, particularly with women. And the failures stung. In his second autobiography, he writes about a crush he had on a girl in seventh grade. He starts to approach her in the hall, and she whispers to her friends, he's blushing and giggles. It's the stuff middle school is made of. But Ted takes it hard. No doubt I was blushing, but I didn't like being laughed at, he writes. At Harvard, he suffered from what he considered acute sexual starvation. He later wrote, I was in daily contact with smart, physically attractive Radcliffe women, and I didn't know how to make advances to them. Sometimes, he said, he would snub a pretty girl who tried to be friendly to him. He said it felt like getting revenge on the enemy. But he kept trying to find a romantic partner. In his journal in 1975, during a brief stint looking for work in the San Francisco Bay Area, he wrote, I thought not so much about physical sex as about love and all that kind of mushy stuff.
2: You know, he advertised in the Berkeley newspapers in the 70s for a squaw to come and live with him in the woods. He got a lot of uh, responses too, and laughed about them and how stupid they were.
0: Kathy poured over Ted's journal entries in the months after his arrest and came to know his triumphs and despair with women very intimately.
2: I don't know if you know that he uh, went to, down to the Bay Area and joined uh, Sierra Singles for a period of time where he went on a couple of walks, uh, hikes with other single people, including a woman that he walked with who he kind of became, inf- he, it didn't take him long to get infatuated.
0: At one point, Ted applied for a job at McDonald's in Oakland. He spotted another applicant, a woman he found attractive. He didn't speak to her, only heard her say to the interviewer that she was into roller derby or roller skating. Ted's not entirely sure. Later on, though, he runs into her on the street, introduces himself, gets her name and phone number. Perhaps I'm not really so inhibited with attractive women as I thought, Ted wrote. But when he called to ask her out, she said she was busy, training for roller derby. He calls her back, but no answer. He thinks to himself, maybe she's just tired from training. Then he admits the obvious. She's avoiding his call. Ted writes, I don't resent her much for it, but I am certainly puzzled. Ted was also puzzling over himself. He wrote that from a young age, he'd had sexual fantasies where he imagined he was a woman. And at Michigan, he said he considered seeking a sex change. But when he went to see an on-campus psychiatrist, he couldn't talk about it. He improvised, said he was depressed about the possibility of being drafted into the Vietnam War instead. He wrote that the whole thing made him deeply ashamed. As far as I can tell, Ted never explored his gender identity with anyone again. But decades later, in the late 1980s, he did go to see another therapist.
2: He paid $50 of a very, very meager sum that he made every year to go see a psychologist in Montana. And his purpose was uh, he wanted to find out how to move back into society and become a participating member and get married and have kids.
0: Ted was happy with the session, but then he decided it was too expensive. He never went for a follow-up. This was right after he'd placed his 12th bomb in the parking lot of a computer store in Salt Lake City. And as he did it, he was seen by an eyewitness. Soon, forensic sketches of the Unabomber were being published around the country. This brush with being identified seemed to prompt a reevaluation. There was the therapy, and then, a few years later, Ted applied to go back to college. He was accepted. At the age of 50, with a math PhD and two years as a faculty member, he was going to be an undergraduate journalism major at the University of Montana. He said he was going back to school because, in his words, he was interested in turning respectable. But then a few weeks before classes began, he pulled out. A normal life and someone to share it with. It's what Ted wanted. But he kept running from it, too.
2: And he really wrote wrenchingly about these things. I mean, he, he bought a new pair of jeans and, and he tried to talk to this woman and he describes, he said, I came back very unabashedly. He says, I came back and sat around my fire and just sobbed. Because I couldn't get up the gumption to even speak to her. She's like an alien to him.
0: For more than two decades, David's own love for his chemistry lab partner, Linda Patrick, was also unrequited. But David kept writing letters to her from the desert. Linda wrote back from Schenectady, New York, where she was a philosophy professor. Every day in the desert, David says he would speak Linda's name under his breath, like a secret mantra. David and Ted had always had different personalities, different strengths, different outlooks on their parents. But to anyone who saw their lives in the mid-80s and didn't know Ted's violent secret, it looked like they'd made a similar vow of solitude. But by the late 80s, the brothers' parallel isolation started to diverge. Linda's marriage broke up. David invited her to come down to Texas. By that point, he'd upgraded his living situation. He'd built a small cabin of his own. David and Linda became a couple, and together they renovated the cabin to be more comfortable, adding a front room and electricity. Kathy Puckett remembers visiting for the first time, years later, when she was in the final stages of the Unabomb investigation. She says the location is so rural that when she arrived... The truck she was in could barely crawl forward because of all the rocks and ruts.
2: And I'm thinking, what is this going to, you know, is this guy going to be? I don't know what, what we're going to look at. We drive up, and it's this cheerful little building with eaves under the roof painted pink. He opens it all up, and uh, inside, there's a rag rug in there that's all colored. It's all as neat as a pen. And, you know, there was something you could use as a sink, but there was no real running water or anything. There was no electricity. He had uh, kerosene lamps.
0: Primitive, but cozy, homey.
2: But it was just surrounded by nothing. And the isolation was profound. The stillness was, was amazing. And I said, did Linda paint those eaves pink? And he grinned and he said, yes. And I said, so was it this nice? before you met Linda?" And he said, Oh, no. No. It wasn't. She's made a big difference in my life. And, you know, you have to understand that within, like, a month and a half later, we were walking through Kaczynski's cabin, which was the polar opposite. I mean, it was like the sun and the darkness, you know? (laughs) We went into the darkness in Kaczynski's cabin.
0: In July 1990, David and Linda got married in a Buddhist ceremony. By then, they were spending most of their time in upstate New York, where Linda was still teaching. Linda had taken David out of the desert, out of isolation, and David was happy in a way he hadn't been, maybe ever. In pictures from their wedding, David is wearing a Hawaiian shirt and khakis, and he's beaming, laugh wrinkles curling around his eyes. It's so clear looking at those photographs... He's found the thing he was looking for. Ted still had not.
1: I actually asked him to congratulate me in a letter, and then the letter I received in return was just absolutely devastating. Um, you know, basically saying he wanted nothing to do with me for the rest of my life. Um, you know, I burned the letter. I just I didn't want to look at it anymore. Um, the deal breaker was that I was um, leaving the wilderness a life like his, a life that he approved of apart from technology to live a you know a more conventional life. Um, I didn't know quite how to take it. He had never met Linda, so he didn't have any particular reason to dislike her. I'd never really talked about her to him. Um, so I don't know I found out years later that Ted had in my apartment in Great Falls he had uh, he had apparently opened a dresser drawer and found a stack of letters that Linda had sent me over the years and had read those letters and whatever for whatever reason took a dislike to her Later on, I began to wonder if there was some element of jealousy there.
2: He assumed that David uh, was, as he was, uh, someone who had never had sex with anyone else.
1: It was around that time that he had become obsessed with the idea of finding a mate.
2: And when David got married to Linda, that was the last straw. It was a betrayal of the virtuous monk-like lives that he thought David was going to attain in the same way he did by living in his cabin in Texas.
0: The letter Ted sent to David after David told him he was moving in with Linda was nearly 14 pages long. Ted reprints it in its entirety in his last autobiography, Truth Versus Lies. And I'll be honest, it's brutal and very hard to read. He mocks the short stories David has written and sent him as hopelessly amateurish. He tells him he finds him insufferably irritating in general. And although he admits he knows barely anything about Linda, he's figured out exactly what he thinks of the relationship, telling David he's going to be so subservient to Linda that he finds it, quote, disgusting. Let me know your neck size, Ted writes. I'd like to get you a dog collar next Christmas. In the years that followed, Ted and David exchanged letters only occasionally. David tried to get Ted to come to their father's funeral in 1990. But for all intents and purposes, their relationship ended as David's partnership with Linda began. And while David sensed that jealousy was part of the equation, he didn't quite get all of what was going on until years later, when he read Ted's journals.
1: At one point in these diaries, he, he mentioned that he had drawn, he was gifted at Draw. He drew a picture of the perfect woman. I guess some beautiful face and figure. And then he, he said, ah, if only this woman could become real. And then he said, but you know, it wouldn't last very long. I'd get mad. Something would happen. The relationship would go down the tubes. It just, gosh, what a, what a sad kind of insight into himself but it really did strike me that this interest in love in sex in marriage even in having children which he talked about um, was something that he had never mentioned or discussed so much so that it completely surprised me
0: do you, do you, have you have you heard the the term incel oh yeah Incel, in case you're not familiar with it, is short for involuntary celibate. It's a term used for young men who become despondent and angry over what they see as their inability to find romance and sex with women. Their misogyny fuels a lot of rage and violence. Do you think Kaczynski was an incel?
2: Um, I think that he had an anger against women. Generally, but he was very, um, with the with the exception of the rage that he felt against the woman Ellen that he met in Chicago and had the one kiss with, he didn't talk about women in general that way.
0: Yeah, I I do. I, I what you're saying makes a lot of sense, and I I guess I think of incels at least in some of the cases we've had of, like, mass shootings doing violence against women, and I do think it's significant that Kaczynski never targeted a woman.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
0: There's a folder in the Ted Kaczynski archive at the University of Michigan titled Musical Compositions. Ted took up the trombone when he was in seventh grade, and he excelled at it. Music, he wrote, came to take on deep emotional significance for him. Later, he would compose contrapuntal arrangements of folk songs and Christmas carols, playing on guitar and zither as he sang. He described it as one of his favorite pastimes. Inside that musical compositions folder, there are two sets of sheet music. The first are a series of six marches composed between 1971 and 1978. In a note, Ted writes that these songs reflect the generally cheerful and optimistic tone of that period of my life, the period that lasted from his move to the cabin in Lincoln until he placed his first bomb. Ted describes sitting by his stove in the evening or the early morning, gazing at the orange glow of the fire. I would whistle a snatch of melody over and over to myself, he writes, until the next few notes that should be added on would come to me. The other set of sheet music in the folder is more recent, trombone duos Ted wrote in prison and dedicated to women whom he identifies only by first name there are compositions for Susan for Lydia, for Julie A and one for a woman named Joy I'm pretty sure I know who all these women are just from reading about Ted leafing through his archives their names come up a few times and Ted's pen pal relationships with women from prison were different he wasn't just pining after women gazing from afar they were reaching out to him Joy seems to be the most meaningful to Ted. Her full name was Joy Richards. I first read about her in a Yahoo News story that the reporter Holly Bailey wrote in 2016. Joy Richards didn't know Ted Kaczynski before he went to prison. But when she read about him and read his writing, she became fascinated by him. She wrote to him offering her help as a researcher, and the relationship grew. When Ted wrote to her, he used colored pencils. He called her Lady Love, He mentioned her in letters to many people. At one point, Ted wrote, She's an angel. I mean, a real one. I'm sure she could fly if she wanted to. You don't see her halo because she's too modest to wear it. She keeps it hung up in her closet. But really, she is an honest-to-goodness angel. Absolutely perfect. But Joy Richards was battling cancer. And in late 2006, her condition worsened. Doctors told her she was going to die. As a final way to express his feelings, Ted wrote that trombone duo for her. Then he sent it to another pen pal, a musician who visited Richards and played her a recording he'd made of the duo on a synthesizer. It was the kind of relationship Ted had been seeking for decades. But by then, of course, he couldn't end his isolation, even if he wanted to. He'd killed three men, leaving widows and fatherless children behind, and had tried to murder many more. And for that, he was in solitary confinement in the most secure prison in the world. The story of how Ted got there, how he became the lead suspect in the Unabomb case, it really begins a few years after Ted had cut David out of his life. It begins when all of a sudden, after a long period of silence and inactivity, he returned.
1: I called in and they advised me that a bomb had gone off in Tiburon, which is right down the road here. And sure in hell, it was Unibomb, alive and well.
0: That's next time on Project Unibomb. Project Unibomb is an Apple original podcast. Produced by Pineapple Street Studios. It's produced by our senior producer, Jonathan Menhivar, and me, I'm Eric Benson. Our producers are Elliot Adler and Melissa Slaughter. Editing by Joel Lovell and Maddie Sprung-Kaiser. Our fact-checker is Sarah Ivry. The episode was mixed by Davey Sumner, Jason Richards, Elliot Adler, and Jonathan Menhevar. Studio recording by Brian Standifer at the Texas Monthly Studio. Our artwork is by Guillem Casus. Music by Mark Orton and John Hancock. Additional music by Eric Phillips and Jeff Baxter. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Rochers. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. Thanks for listening.